Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this hour. Thank you for your word. And by it, I ask that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear, and a heart that longs to see the preeminent Christ this morning. May this be a time of true worship and not just education. May it be education for exaltation. May it lead us into the doxology for which you are due. Lord, we thank you for this hour. Thank you for the songs we've sung and the scriptures we've read. And all of it, we trust, is true. And certainly every word of yours is true. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with your truth and wisdom and knowledge and the ability to communicate the glory of Christ to others for their sake and for your great joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Last week I began by saying this will not be a Christmas sermon, so let me just say this week that this will be a Christmas sermon. The reason that I pushed so hard to get through 14 verses last week is so that we could come this week ready to dive into verse 15 through 20. And so here we are. It's Christmas time again. And as every year, we get the joyful privilege of gathering together to worship Christ, the newborn King, as we sang just a few minutes ago. And when we gather to worship at Christmas, it's hard to imagine that anyone would be reluctant to entrust themselves to the Savior. And that's because we have tasted repeatedly and discovered that the Lord is good and that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and all of his promises toward us are true. They are, as Paul would say, they are all yes and amen. Lord, is this promise true? Yes. Are they for us? Yes and amen. So all of his promises are for us, and we have benefited from the lavishness of his past grace, and it seems only natural then that we would trust him for his promises of future grace. Nevertheless, I suspect in a cultural moment such as the one in which we live, there are many who are kind of on the fence about Jesus. In our pluralistic society, there are legions of voices that take exception to the exclusivity of the gospel that declares that there is only one God and that there is only one way to God. There is only one Savior sufficient to meet our every need. That is to say, when Jesus spoke the divine with divine authority, when he declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and furthermore, that no one can come to the Father but through me, this is offensive to the spirit of the age. But this is nothing new. I mean, think about this. We're studying Colossians, and our ancient brothers and sisters in the city of Colossae lived in a culture where it was almost universally accepted that there are many gods and there are many paths to the gods. The true God, however, who spoke long ago in many times, in many ways to our fathers by the prophets in these last days, has spoken to us 
through his son. And how did that happen? Well, as Keith earlier read, because of his great love for sinners, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, stepped down from his heavenly throne and took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And the Apostle John says it like this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as from the Father, full of grace and truth. And to the church of Galatia, Paul said this, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And that woman, of course, as you know, was a young girl named Mary, who was betrothed to her husband, Joseph. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not about presents. It's not about lights, although the lights are beautiful, or Christmas trees, or any of that stuff. It, it that is Christmas, is about the incarnation of God. And if incarnation is a word that is a little cryptic to you, Incarnation simply means this, that God became man. That he didn't give up anything of his nature, but he took on to himself, in himself, the nature of man, in addition to the nature of God. Well, of course, I realize you know these things. Every Christian knows them. But there are always some who question whether this Jesus, born in poverty and obscurity, really has the credentials to be the savior of the world. Oh, sure, the wise men seemed pretty impressed by this child, and Simeon and Anna in the, in the temple when Jesus was presented at, at eight days old. They were convinced that he was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. When he was 12 years old, the teachers at the temple were amazed at his grasp of truth and the depth of the questions that he answered. And when he became a rabbi, none of the brilliant teachers of Israel were his equal. Most impressive of all, he was able to heal the sick and raise the dead. And none of his contemporaries, I might add, ever took issue with the miracles that he did. At least they never denied them. Nevertheless, while the ability to perform miracles is impressive, it doesn't necessarily qualify one to be the savior of the world. And so we come back around to the question, what qualifies Jesus as the, as the sufficient savior of the world? What qualifies Jesus to be the savior of all who will believe? Why should we have confidence that entrusting your whole life and your whole eternity to Jesus is wise and safe? This, I think, is a legitimate question, don't you? And one that really should be answered with truth that is more robust and compelling than the story of a baby in a manger. Thankfully, however... The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, happily takes on this question by peeling back the veil of time and space to reveal who Jesus was and is before and after his 30, 
three years of life in this world. So how will a Paul accomplish this? How will he convince us that our giving our entire life and eternity over to Jesus, trusting him with it, how is he going to convince us that that is safe and wise? Well, the Apostle Paul will accomplish this feat by pointing to Jesus' relationship with five things. First of all, his relationship with the Father. Secondly, his relationship with the cosmos. Thirdly, with his relationship with angels. Fourth, his relationship with the church. And fifth, his relationship with the future. Now that may sound like an, an impossible amount to cover in the hour, that I, the hour and a half that I have left. <laughs> I looked at the clock and stumbled there. Okay, so we don't have that much time, but uh, I knew I was in trouble when I was hitting 20 pages and I still had two more points left. So just know that I'd way scaled that back. It was like tearing the skin off of my flesh to do it, but really every one of these points could take a, a whole sermon, maybe even a whole series, some of them. And so you're just going to, I hate to say we're going to gloss over it. We're not going to gloss over it. I, I hope you will find it to be rich and rewarding. I've never preached a Christmas message from this passage before, I don't think. But I do think that you will see that it provides the perfect foundation upon which all the biblical claims concerning Jesus securely stand. And let's begin, as always, by standing together and listening to the public reading of God's Word. Colossians 1, and I'm actually going to start with verse 13 just for context's sake. Colossians 1, 13, he has delivered us, that is, and we gotta be specific here, this is the Father, the Father is delivering us. Um, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, stop, there's, there's a little break here. He's just talked to us about Jesus having a kingdom and Jesus being our Savior. The question is, what qualifies him to be those things, right? Okay, back to the text, verse 15. Here's his qualifications. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. You know, maybe in another setting I would be tempted just to read a line and give you ten minutes of quiet to ponder it. And read another line and give you another 10 to 15 minutes to meditate on it. 
Paul's goal in this passage, I will tell you, is to magnify in our hearts the preeminence of Christ by revealing his eternal credentials. So let's consider the first, Jesus' relationship with the Father. In verse 15, he says, he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The word for image here, it's interesting, it's the word icon, icon. If you've ever had the opportunity to enter a Greek or Russian Orthodox church or even some other churches, you will find pictures, paintings of the saints, the apostles, Mary, Jesus, Joseph. These pictures in those churches are commonly referred to as icons. Uh, there's also icons on your smartphone, on your computer, and they seem to be everywhere today. And that gives us a hint of what Paul has in mind. Jesus is the icon, the likeness, the image of God. But Paul doesn't mean that he's merely a picture or a stamp of God. Rather, he means this, that Jesus is, listen carefully to this phrase, he is the invisible God made visible. Say that with me. He is the invisible God made visible. And the most important part of that is he is God. He is the person of the triune Godhead who came to live among men as a man. We know that Paul intends to tell us that Jesus is, the, is actually the I am because this very letter says things like chapter 2 verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity was pleased to dwell bodily. Bodily. That's what makes this a Christmas message, by the way. Jesus, who is God in spirit, now is God in a body. The very thing that the ancient Colossians denied could happen. And the fact of his eternal nature is borne out by other words of God. For example, Philippians 2, 6 before coming to earth, he existed in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. Imprint here in Greek is character. I mean, that's actually the Greek word. And that's kind of how you pronounce it. It is the same character of God. Whatever God is on the inside, that's what Jesus is. All of it and nothing left out. He is the exact character of his nature. John 14, 8 and 9, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the invisible God made visible. That's what he's saying. J.I. Packer concludes with the backing of 2,100 years of Christian theology that the Christmas message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger is God. And since we're talking about Jesus' relationship with the Father, it may be enlightening to step back two verses, verses 12 and 13, for just a minute. Look at this. 
He says, giving thanks to the Father. That's why I emphasized the Father when I read this the first time. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is verses 12 and 13. And 12 and 13 is all about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is their relationship. And what I want you to see here, and I, I had to remove some of this, but what I wanted you to see here is that Paul, Paul's emphasis on the Father's relationship with the Son is not focused so much on their relationship of mission or their relationship of nature, but their relationship of love. The Father loves the Son. And it's hard to, to compress the depth and magnitude of that statement. For eternity, it was just them. It was just him. And yet they were never lonely. They were never bored. They were never peeved at one another. I mean, how long can you stay with one person isolated with them without getting a little friction? Never with God. God the Father and God the Son. I'm going to argue through this sermon that the whole point of Christmas is God expressing love to the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. Father delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Does that phrase, beloved Son, does that ring a bell? Jesus' baptism. It's one of two times that God spoke out of heaven over Israel. And the first time at his baptism, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. I am pleased with him. And the second time God spoke from heaven was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he told Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son Listen to him. You see, Jesus is not merely the Father's only son. He is the Father's beloved son. More literally, he is the son of the Father's love. The son of the Father's love. And listen to this very carefully. Everything that God has ever done in the cosmos he is done for the express purpose of exalting the Son. Everything that God ever did in the cosmos, he did to exalt his Son. And beloved Jesus is that Son. You know, when you think deeply about this, in terms of Jesus' relationship with the Father, you realize this is the only credential that Jesus needs to be qualified as the Savior of the world. He is the invisible God made visible. I mean, does he need any other credentials? Everything else is secondary. And that is why your decision to entrust to him 
your life and eternal future is both wise and safe. But there's more. Jesus' second credential is revealed next, his relationship with the cosmos. In Colossians 1.15, again, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the idea of Christ being the firstborn of all creation is often misunderstood. A number of cults have seized upon this to suggest that Jesus was a created being. Uh, but I suspect that none of those cult leaders were Jewish. If they had been, they, they would have understood. This is not at all what Paul means. He's not saying that of all the created things, Jesus was the first created thing. That's not what he's saying, despite what the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or anybody else may say. The term firstborn, once you understand the term firstborn, it makes sense why that view is wrong. And it will make sense what Paul is saying. Firstborn comes from the Greek word prototokos, meaning highest in rank. This was a commonly understood idea among the Jews. I mean, everybody knew this. Everybody knew this for all the thousands of years there was, there was such a thing as Jews after Abraham. In Israel, the firstborn son, listen, the firstborn son was the son who inherited special rights and privileges. His birthright was a double portion. So let's say there were 12 sons, right? In, in Jesus' case, he's the only one. But let's just say there were 12 sons. Well, the firstborn gets half of the inheritance, and the other 11 divide up what's left, right? We might say the firstborn is therefore preeminent. He has more authority. He has higher status. The person who received the birthright, the right of the firstborn, was not always the first one who was born. But he was the one who got the majority of the inheritance. And not only did he get the majority of the inheritance, but he also became the leader of the family when dad passed away. And if you were the only son, you got everything. You got everything. I walked outside last night to cook some hamburgers. There's an old rickety table back there. And, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody said, hey, what, what is that? I've never seen a table like that. And it's, it's all broken up and, and uh, it, it falls down a lot. It's dangerous. And I said, oh, that's, that's my inheritance. <laughs> that's what my dad left me. <laughs> Among a, a, a ton of wonderful memories as well. But yeah, this table is, you know, that's my inheritance. Not <laughs> but if I were, if I were at, if I had grown up as a Jewish man in the Old Testament and I was the firstborn and I was the only child, I would have gotten everything. And that's the point here. Jesus is the firstborn. And he's the only begotten. So everything that belongs to the Father belongs to him. And so I want to make the point here that while some may say firstborn or firstborn of creation means he was the first to be created, the other thing you have to understand here is that, that not all the firstborns were actually the, the ones born first. Now, I'll give you a couple of examples. Joseph Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob, and yet the status 
of being the firstborn was transferred to him in Genesis 48. And likewise, David was the youngest of all of the brothers in Jesse's family. But Psalm 89 promises, quote, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so in this case, David, and by prophetic word, David's future son, the Messiah, would be given the right of the firstborn, the one who holds the rank of firstborn and is preeminent over all his brothers, which in Jesus' case didn't have any brothers, at least not begotten of God. In the verse before us, verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation in the sense that as God's firstborn and only begotten Son, all creation, all of the cosmos is his inheritance. The author of Hebrews said it like this, in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. All things. Moreover, Paul explains that the entire cosmos belongs to Jesus because he actually created it. This isn't a stretch to think about deeply. I mean, if you're, if you're an Old Testament in an Old Testament family and you're the oldest son, while your dad is alive, you're building stuff. You're building stuff. You're building stuff. It's kind of the picture here where the father is creating He's building this creation. Now, granted, he did it in one word. And yet, the text says over and over in New Testament that it was Jesus. Not only the Father and not only the Spirit, but it was Jesus who created these things. And Paul explains that the entire cosmos belongs to Jesus because he actually created it. He was part with the Spirit and the Father. He says, For by him all things were created, whether visible or invisible. And sometimes the visible creation is absolutely awesome in beauty, power, and intricacy. And you know, I almost never use the word awesome unless we're talking about God or what he has done. And sometimes, sometimes what you see in creation is awesome. It's awesome. Remember taking Mike and Maddie to the Grand Canyon, and I think Wesley was with us, and we're standing there on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and one of the twins said, okay, can we say awesome now? <laughs> yes, you can say awesome. This is, this is awesome. It's the glory of God. There are many things in the created order that are invisible to us. For example, our eyes can't perceive the earth's magnetic field, but it's there, and every day it shields us from the harmful, even deadly radiation of the sun. We can't see radio waves or microwaves or sound waves, but we use them all the time to enhance our work and leisure. Uh, even right now, there are people in this room 
and people all over the place who are listening to me right now, down the hall and who knows what countries and states and whatever, because things are happening in the unseen world. Without the help of a powerful microscope, we can't see single-celled creatures or germs or molecules, but they're there, and they exist. Why? Because God made them. Jesus made them. And if you wonder why there are creatures on the bottom of the sea that we have never seen before, it should tell us that not everything God created was for our joy. Some of it is just for his joy. And by the way, John the Apostle makes this perfectly clear when in John chapter 1 he says, all things were made by him and, in case you're going to fool around with the verbiage there, he words it a different way, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, how many things have come into being? All things. And apart from the things that have come into being, nothing has come into being. And you know what, you know what that means? Tell your Jehovah's Witness friends that Jesus is not a created being because in order to be a created being, you had to have a beginning. And he never did. I don't think they'll accept that answer, but you could tell them the truth. And this is exactly what we see in Colossians 1.16. By him all things were created. The word for all things, you know what it means in the Greek? <laughs> yeah, you're on to me now, right? After 25 years, <laughs> it means all things. And here's what else it means, a different way to translate it. It could mean all things. It could mean everything. It could mean the whole thing. The whole thing. I mean, the whole thing. The whole universe were created by him. If there's anything in the universe that has come into being, it came into being because Jesus brought it into being. And so what Paul is revealing to us is that Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God and one with God, he is creator God. And if you jump ahead with me to verse 16, Paul continues in this vein by declaring that the universe and everything in it were created by him and, what's the next phrase? For him. Isn't that interesting? Now, let me just go back to what I said earlier. Everything the Father has ever done in the cosmos was for Christ. It's for him. Moreover, he existed before any of them. You see how he's piling on words and phrases to make sure we don't misunderstand this. He existed before them. Verse 17 declares, he is before, he's before what? All things. That is, before there was any created thing in the cosmos, Jesus is. Except he wasn't called Jesus until he became a man. He was before all things. When I was the worship leader at Calvary Bible Church many moons ago, um, me and Dana always worked hard at, at uh, making sure everything was right, getting the bulletins printed, and I had, I had typed in all of the names of all of the songs so that we could have a system to work with. 
and uh, I mistyped one. It was that, that old song that we used to sing, Lord, you are more precious than silver. And a young man came to me, and he pointed to that, that title, and he said, uh, he said, Pastor, um, can I just read this to you? And I was like, what, the title of the song? And he said, yeah, let me just read it to you the way you have it. It says, Lord, you are more previous than silver. <laughs> and I said, what's the problem? It's right. <laughs> it's theologically correct. <laughs> Dana and I spent a lot of time laughing about it, and then we never fixed it, so it happened again and again. But I think when we hired Charlie, everything got put right. Why does the earth maintain its perfect axis so that we don't burn up or freeze to death? Why does the earth maintain a perfect distance from the sun? Why do the planets and heavenly bodies fly in perfect orbit so that their movements are all, have always been measurable and predictable? Answer, because Jesus Christ not only created them, let's take another step, he actively sustains them. Listen, we are not deists. We don't think that God is like the great watchmaker who wound up the cosmos and set it aside and is watching it from a distance as it winds back down. God is not watching us from a distance regardless of what Bette Midler or anyone else might suggest. That's a deist song. We believe that Jesus is actively involved in his creation. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And notice it's in him not just by him. It is the very essence of Jesus' nature. He is the eternal one. He does not exist in the universe. The universe exists in him. And so what is Jesus' relationship with the cosmos? Only this, that he owns it all because he made it all. How's that for a qualification? He is the firstborn of all creation. So, when we see the beauty and majesty of creation, perhaps with our families as we have opportunity, we should just stop, pull the car over, or take up a seat on the ground, and look at it intently, and maybe sing together, Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. And that brings us to number three. Third credential, Christ's relationship with the angels. Paul writes in verse 16, By him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, do those words sound a little cryptic? Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. We could add principalities. They are a little vague. All you have to do is pick up any commentary and the vagary of it all will come clear, or at least that it is vague. But Paul helps us understand what he means when we consider 
some things that he wrote to the church of Ephesus. In Ephesians 1.21, we learn that when Jesus rose again from the dead, the Father seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, key phrase here, far above all, listen to this list, so now Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And whatever these things are, they are spiritual realities, invisible spiritual realities. And by the way, here's another clue. He uses the same terms uh, plus some more in Ephesians 6 when he teaches us how to prepare for spiritual warfare. And so in brief, to condense a little bit, the terms are used almost exclusively for the angelic and demonic hosts. This was a big deal in Colossae. Because as I mentioned before, the false teachers had a skewed view of angels, as people do today. Any Mormon temple that you see will have a spire at the top that's golden, and on top of that will be an angel, the angel Moroni or Moroni or something like that. The terms he uses here have to do with angels and demons, and in the case of Moroni, we're not sure which one it is. Or maybe we are. And here's what Paul says in Colossians 2.18, speaking of Mormonism, don't let anyone disqualify you by insisting on the worship of angels. I think Marvin Vincent is right on this point when he writes, this passage is aimed by Paul at angel worship. Because people in Colossae look to angels as mediators of communion with God. In so doing, they had degraded Christ who is above them all and is the sole mediator between God and men. The false teachers look to the angels as mediators. The Roman Catholic Church looks to Mary as a mediator. But Paul told Timothy, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Timothy to five, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is superior to the angels. And he's superior to the angels because he created them. And listen to this. They love him. They worship him. They serve him. And by the way, contrary to the little figurine that sits atop of most of your Christmas trees, in the Bible, you never find an angel appearing as a woman. These are massive, male-like creatures who are frightening to see, which is why, I suppose, every time they appear, they say, don't die to quote Al Mohler. They say, don't be afraid. Why? Because you're about to be afraid. This isn't some girly man dressed with white wings and <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> Nevertheless, on the night Jesus was born, a multitude of them showed up. 
And one of them apparently was the spokesman. They appeared to the angels. They were keeping their watch over the flock by night. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and began shouting or singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, I don't know that they repeated it. I suspect they repeated it like this. Here's precedent. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that charming little Christmas tree scene and the scene of the baby in the manger with Mary and Joseph and the wise men and the cattle. Yeah, it was like that, some iteration of that. But we should remember that the angels and other members of the invisible host are imposing creatures. They are fearful. And witness those who, those at least two, who when Isaiah entered the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the temple was filling, I think, with the Shekinah smoke, the Shekinah glory of God. And there were these angelic beings, these seraphim, standing over the throne. And they had six wings. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they covered their faces, which theologians say, they covered their faces because even for the angels, God cannot be looked at. And here they were, over the throne of God, flapping their wings and declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we don't know if it was the power of their words or the decibels of the sound, but Isaiah says, the threshold of the temple was rocked. And how did Isaiah respond? He fell on his face and said, he started pronouncing curses on himself. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And, and that narrative is primarily, obviously, about the glory of the Lord. But I would say two things about it. Number one, John tells us that the Lord who was sitting on the throne that day was, in fact, Jesus. That's stunning. And the seraphim behind him, be afraid. Tremble. Indescribable. And here's the point. As glorious and powerful and mighty as they are, Jesus is preeminent over them all. You know one of the names of the Lord? He is called Lord of hosts. You know what that means? It means he is the captain of an army of angels. These are foreboding things. 
when we think about who these creatures are. This was a terrifying scene before Isaiah. Do you remember how the author of Hebrews compared the angels to Christ? I mean, if you have a minute, and you do, turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We pick up with verse 3. And the author says this. For brevity, I'm going to throw an ellipsis in here. After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That means kingly throne, majesty on high. Having become as much superior, you you could just throw in the word preeminent over the angels, as his name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For, here's the question, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, when he brings the firstborn, there's that word again, right? When he brings the firstborn into the world, that's Christmas. When he brings the firstborn into the world, And when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels, what? Worship him. We don't worship them. They worship him. And so do we. The point, beloved, is that Christ is not an angel. He is preeminent over the angels. They bow before him. He is their creator, and they exist for his pleasure. And so we've looked at Jesus' relationship with the Father, with the cosmos, with the angels, and now we consider Christ's relationship with the church. I I love the order of this. It fits perfectly with the series we just completed on God's most precious possession. Now you're going to see again why the church or, or how we can legitimately say that God, God's most precious possession is the church. Notice verses 18 and 19. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We'll come back to 19 in just a minute. That Jesus is the head of the church tells us that of all the peoples of the earth, he has set his exclusive affection and devotion upon the church. He created her by giving her life. He purchased her by his death on the cross, and he made an exclusive promise to her not to be shared with anyone on the outside. No outsiders get this promise. And the promise is this, that those who believe in me, even though they die, yet they shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This is by the power of resurrection. Indeed, death for them will not be the end. It will merely be the beginning of resurrection life. On what basis do members of the church receive eternal life, resurrection life? Well, they receive it by grace 
through faith as a gift from God. They get it from Christ himself, he who promised them resurrection, that is, eternal life. I mean, we all know we're going to die, right? You know that. You know that. And everybody dies. Some live longer. But pretty much, I mean, we talk about let's say 125 years, somebody's been alive for 125 years, they're done. I mean, they're, they're just about, everybody dies on time. We don't have anybody that's 200, 300, 400 years old. Everybody dies within the common lifespan. And some of them, when they die, are separated from God forever. And some of them, when they die, are resurrected to eternal life. This is the promise. This is the promise to his church. You will not die. You will be given life. And notice once again that Paul calls Jesus the firstborn. Here we are again. The firstborn, the protodokos. The first one was the firstborn of creation. Now he is the firstborn of the dead, from the dead. It means of all those who have been raised, Jesus is preeminent. Of all of those who will be raised, Jesus is preeminent. What makes Jesus preeminent over all the cosmos, over the angels, over the church? Only this, that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And notice the word pleased here. Verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, let's hold off on verse 19 for just a second. It's just important for us to understand that when we, when we talk about Jesus relative to the church, we talk about him as the one who is preeminent in resurrection because that is the essence of your eternal life. There is no knowing God forever if you don't rise. But because he is, and in him is the fullness of God, he has the power to bring us all living into his kingdom. And as I was going to say a minute ago, notice the word pleased. Back to the Father's relationship with the Son. In Him, in Him, verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Pleased to dwell. There was no argument. There was no persuasion. I said in the beginning that everything the Father does, He does out of love for the Son And here we see what God the Father has done. He has poured all that he is into Jesus the man so that he is 100% man and 100% God. That's, by my calculation, 200%. Right, Charlie? And that's bad math, but that's good theology. And he's the only one. There's no other like him. Do you know who is sitting on the throne of God today? The man, 
Christ Jesus. It's amazing. The pagan Colossians says, that's impossible. And God says, no, it's just my son. He is very God, a very God, and he is man without question. And we know that Jesus has the credentials to be the savior of the world. We know it because of Jesus' relationship with the Father, with the cosmos, with the angels, with the church. I wish we had more time to talk about his relationship with the church. The main point I want you to see here is that Jesus, who is the creator, chose the church to be his kingdom. And he, of all the peoples of the world, and all the groups of people, when Paul says not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, broken people like you and me, a few smart people, a few wise people, but most, most are just like me and you. He got nothing to offer. He got, I mean, and yet God chose us. It's amazing, isn't it? And that brings us to Christ's relationship with the future. And my relationship with the future is getting narrower and narrower, so I need to keep moving. Verse 20. And through him, this is a beautiful verse, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Perhaps you've never considered this before, but Jesus' death on the cross not only atoned for our sins and exalted Christ as the only mediator and savior, it also is the basis upon which God will restore all of creation and make every wrong right. When he says reconcile, he doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. What he means is, by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, everything that exists will one day be put in its appropriate place. Paul's statement here is somewhat eschatological, and perhaps very eschatological. That is, when God's plan to redeem a people for Christ's own possession is finally complete, he will... The Father will do one more thing to exalt the Son. Now, his death on the cross obviously is complete. And we are living in this time right now where the Lord is just saying, be patient, be patient. You remember the saints under the, 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 um, the altar saying, Lord, how long, how long, how long? A little longer, a little longer. And we don't know how long that's going to be. I mean, it could be another thousand years, right? I mean, what, what, God's saying, what, I, I can't wait five more minutes. <laughs> the Father will one day wrap it all up. The redemption story will come to a conclusion. The Father will give him a new heaven and a new earth. The curse will be broken and the rebellion will be ended forever. And listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Don't turn there. I just want you to listen to a couple of texts. And just rejoice in these. Revel in these. Let your heart ignite 
over these. Long, uh, along with forgiving our sins, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is not Colossians, this is Ephesians. Paul's repeating this, and he's giving us more clarity by repeating it. And then in Romans 8, he gives us more clarity when he writes this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. Now, why is creation waiting for the revelation of the Son of God, the return of Christ? For, purpose statement, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with pangs, of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Listen, the death of Jesus has accomplished infinitely more than we could ever comprehend. And when God takes that and pulls the trigger on what he has already purchased, it will look to us like everything has changed. This is an amazing revelation from God. The finished work of Christ on the cross guarantees not only our salvation, but also the restoration of creation. No longer will man fear the earth or anything in creation. You hear those poor people, they're just sightseeing down in, where was it, Australia? And that volcano suddenly blew. And how many of them died? When redemption, this redemption that Paul's referring to happens, you never have to be afraid of that happening. The earthquakes, no more. Destruction, no longer, by the way, will animals be a terror to us or us to them. We can hike Glacier National Park without bear spray <laughs> or a gun. The prophet Isaiah, here's what the prophet Isaiah said. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. And they shall not hurry or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. How much of the sea is covered with water? All of it. You see, when Paul speaks of all things being reconciled to Christ, he's not teaching universalism. 
Rather, he's showing us that the preeminence of Christ is so magnificent that in the end, everything will be rendered back to its proper order. The heavens and the earth will be restored. Sin will be banished forever. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow. Believers will finally experience the fullness of eternal life and resurrection in the presence of Christ. The unbelieving will fall under God's righteous judgment and Christ will rule as Lord. As Paul famously said, on that day, the, at the name of Jesus, every, what, say it with me, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess Willingly or unwillingly, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there it is again. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And God is being glorified. And so at Christmas time, it's completely appropriate to meet together and sing and worship, even shout the glory of the preeminence of Christ. And we do when we sing like we ought to sing at Christmas. We sang a little while ago, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's the song from which I got the title of this sermon. The second verse reads, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold, he come, Offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so if you were on the fence about Jesus, whether you should entrust your life and your eternity to his care. I just want to say to you, it is safe to hang your eternal hope exclusively upon Jesus because he is nothing less than God in flesh. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I don't presume that every person in this room knows Jesus. I suspect everyone in this room and down the hall and most of those who are listening by other means know about Jesus. But I question whether everyone, even in our church, has bowed before him and given up their own autonomy and entrusted themselves completely to the glory of Christ, the grace of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, the rule of Christ. Oh, Father, would you give them the grace to repent and believe and to trust you? Would you save them? And would you fill our hearts afresh with the joy that is ours because God, the person, second person of the Trinity, to not think that clinging to his throne was the most pleasing thing to the Lord. But he set it aside and became one of us, coming into the world the way we all come into the world, 
by birth so that he could save us. We praise you for that. May our hearts be full of it this week and with our families and with our unbelieving neighbors. Be glorified in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.